I'm your host, Gina. And I'm Chris. And we're here to tell you the stories of small towns and the heinous crimes that changed them forever. This week's story brings us to Belleville, Illinois. And before she gets into this, yes, we know that we've been doing a lot of stories in southern Illinois. You guys have to bear with us. We are getting to other towns. This is what we know, okay? This is what we know. This is where we're from. But we are, we do have some stories from, like, I think Michigan and Wisconsin Indiana. And Indiana. Like, we have other areas coming up. And if you have ideas for stories, you're more than welcome to email us or message us on uh, the MidwestCrimeFiles.com. Absolutely. We are always interested in learning new stories and finding um, new crimes that we should definitely cover. Um. So this week's story, as I said, happens in Belleville, and this was considered your everyday town. Uh, in one of the sources I read, it was even considered like a leave it to beaver kind of town. Um, but there were some strange things going on and some horrible tragedies. On April 22nd of 1978, Elizabeth West uh, left Belleville Township High School and disappeared. She was 14 years old. Her body was found on May 4th, 1978, in a wooded area near Millstadt, Illinois. Her body had been strangled and she had been hit in the head. On July 7th of that same year, nurse aide Ruth Ann Janey disappeared after depositing her check at a local bank. Her body was found in July 1979 near Hecker, Illinois. And for those of you who don't know the area, Hecker is a town of like 200 people and a lot of cornfields. It is your leave it to beaver town. Absolutely. Uh, Ruth Ann's body also showed signs of strangulation and that was what her cause of death was ruled as. The... Bodies seemed to stop showing up for at least a couple of years, but in September of 1986, the body of an unidentified female was found murdered in a cornfield in Smithton, Illinois. The body had been strangled and her pelvic area had been mutilated. On July 25th of 1987, 19-year-old Christina Povelish disappeared from Belleville. Her body was found three days later. The cause of death was strangulation and there were signs of sexual assault. In June of 1988, Audrey Cardenas, an intern at the Belleville News Democrat, disappeared. Her body was found shortly after on the campus of Belleville East High School. She too had been strangled. And that's not even where these crimes stop. On September 27, 1989, the bodies of a pregnant JoLaine Landman and her three-year-old son Kenneth were found in their home. The victims had been strangled, stabbed, and bludgeoned. These murders are still a lot of mystery in the town of Belleville, and no one is quite sure if they're all related. But seven people lost their lives in just over 11 years. And the twisted tale that I'm about to tell you seems like something that's out of a made-for-television movie. But this is the story of the suspected Belleville serial killer. So when we're talking about Mr. Dale Anderson, I want you guys to understand that he was born in 1951 in Canton, Ohio. 
His family moved to Illinois sometime during his youth. I was kind of confused when I was reading the sources because they said he first moved to Galesburg and then moved to Belleville. But he's listed as going to both high schools. So I think that he probably um, moved from Galesburg to Belleville sometime in his teenage years. Um, when the investigators were doing their investigation and a lot of the authors that wrote books about Dale, they asked people that went to high school with him to describe him. And a lot of people didn't even remember who he was. He was quiet. He was forgettable. He didn't have a whole lot of friends, um, but he did seem to excel in academics and he attended the Illinois state university. And that's where he met his wife, Linda. They both graduated and became licensed teachers and, they settled down in Belleville into a nice ranch home and became parents to both a son and a daughter. Dale and Linda were both teachers, but Dale grew really restless in his career. And in 1977, he applied for a position with the Illinois State Police, but was rejected, according to Radford University. He took jobs at different insurance companies, but those positions didn't last long either. He was accused of misconduct and strange behavior. Um, one of the sources that um, I read describes him as inappropriately touching clients, um, you know, being a little bit too handsy and made people very uncomfortable. And this is also the time in the late 70s where the family and people that knew Dale said his behavior became really strange and secretive, and he really wanted to work in law enforcement. He had applied at the Fairview Heights Police Department, at the Belleville Police Department, but he wasn't able to get a job in any of those positions. However, according to Alva Bush's book on the subject, um, on the subject of Dale Anderson, he describes that Dale actually told his in-laws for over 10 years that he was an undercover operative with law enforcement, which is, it's just insane when you think about keeping a lie that long. Um, eventually, he did, for a very brief moment, work in law enforcement. He was hired as a deputy at the St. Clair County Jail on a federal program that only lasted one year, from 1978 to 1979. Alva Bush, who was an investigator who investigated this case as well as wrote a book about it, um, he was his book is one of the primary sources that we used for this article. So I think it's really important to give that book a shout out. It's called Deadly Deception, and it was published in 1993. And as I said, Mr. Bush is an investigator in Belleville area or retired investigator and was one of the primary investigators in this case. Um, so as I was saying, Dale was hired under this federal program. He was working in the St. Clair County Jail, which from my understanding is um, one of the rougher county jails, at least in Illinois. Um, however, Mr. Bush in his book, Deadly Deception, says that the job that he had was really more of a jailer. He wasn't an investigator. He wasn't a detective. He wasn't even allowed to carry a gun in the position that he had. Um, however, that position under that federal program only lasted till 1979. 
And then Dale took a job at the Illinois Department of Public Aid, but he still continued to tell family members that he was a special agent for the Illinois Bureau of Investigations, according to Radford University. Dale worked in the Illinois Public Aid Office for most of the 1980s, and at first it seemed to be a successful position for him, but his strange behavior came back around and um, they started getting a lot of complaints about him not returning calls. His work performance just wasn't great. He was accused of telling clients to falsify documents in order to get more uh, public aid than what they were entitled to. His erratic behavior continued into 1988 and that's when he really started getting very aggressive and hostile with his supervisors And we all know somebody that doesn't like their supervisors, but Dale Anderson takes that to a whole nother level. Um, The problems really come to a head in May of 1988 when his supervisors attempt to counsel him for his poor work performance. And he actually calls the cops and presses charges on his three supervisors, saying that they physically assaulted him, threatened him, and stole money from him. And that's according to both Radford University and Alva Bush's book, Deadly Deception. His supervisors, um, Maurice Hale, Robert Delaria, and Charlotte Krupa were initially arrested, but eventually all the charges were dropped because they were really unfounded. There really wasn't any substance to his claim. Um, And at that point, Dale just kind of becomes enraged. Like I said, he takes not liking your supervisors to a whole new level. Um. He starts reaching out to the Belleville News Democrat, asking them to run a story about uh, the charges that he filed against his supervisors. And there was actually a story that ran in June of 1988, and it was written by Carolyn Tuft from the Belleville News Democrat. And Carolyn is going to be a very important person in this story, so remember her name. He was arrested just a few days after the article when Carolyn Tuff told authorities that while she was interviewing him for the story, he showed her a gun and he was acting very strange and it was enough to make her feel threatened. So he was arrested on gun charges just a few days later. And he told Alva Bush during the investigation that the Belleville Police Department confiscated all of his guns and his weapons, and he was very upset about that. He thought that it was unconstitutional. He felt like his supervisors were actually in cahoots with the Belleville Police Department to set him up to cover up what he described as corruption in the Illinois Public Aid Office. Later in June, um, he actually calls the Belleville News Democrat, not the police, but the newspaper, um, to tell them that his supervisor had taken shots at him and were trying to kill him. The scene apparently wasn't very credible, and most people, investigators and journalists alike, feel like he staged that scene to try to get his uh, supervisors arrested. Around this time, on actually on June 11th of 1988, Audrey Cardenas arrives in Belleville to pursue her dream of becoming a journalist. She was a recent graduate of Texas A&M, and she was now an intern with the Belleville News Democrat. 
Dale would later tell investigators that Audrey was interviewing for him was interviewing him for a story about his supervisors and the illegal schemes he was privy to, but stated that the supervisors had threatened to kill Audrey if she published the story. However, that claim seems to be unfounded as well. There were no witnesses or evidence to substantiate this claim, except a letter that was written by the friend of Dale's daughter. Now, this was a very young girl, and she did say that she wrote this letter saying that Audrey Cardenas told her that the supervisors were trying to kill her if she published this story, but she said that she never actually spoke or even met Audrey, that she was asked by Mr. Anderson to write the letter, so she did. On June 19th, just eight days after arriving in Belleville to start her internship, Audrey Cardenas disappeared. She was last seen jogging near Belleville East High School. While she was missing, Dale Anderson called the Belleville News Democrat and reported that his supervisors had kidnapped Cardenas and gave his supervisors home address to the newspaper. So here we go again with this crazy erratic uh, behavior. You know, if you don't like your supervisors, most people quit their job and move on. (laughs) Like Dale Anderson was out for blood like he was just angry um and again if if that was true why would you call the newspaper why wouldn't you call the police department it doesn't make a lot of sense on june 26th the body of audrey cardenas was found on the campus of belleville east high school laying in a dry creek bed the body was decomposed making it very hard to determine the cause of death. But according to Alva Bush's book, there was enough trauma to the neck area that they determined she either died of strangulation or having her throat slashed. While the scene was taped off, this transient homeless person walks onto the scene, you know, through the yellow police scene do not cross tape and he's just acting very strange his name is rodney wotyke and i'm not 100 percent sure if i'm pronouncing that wotick okay so there um you know he turns out rodney's a paranoid schizophrenic he has serious mental health issues but the police think it's suspicious that he walked onto this crime scene and so they take him for questioning and they question him for hours and hours and hours. And eventually he com- he confesses to killing Audrey Cardenas. However, his confession has a lot of inconsistencies that don't match with the evidence that they find. In the meantime, Dale Anderson is inserting himself again and again into this investigation. He attends her memorial service, which was held at St. Elizabeth's Hospital, and he told other mourners, including Audrey's father, that he was a special investigator investigating the case. He continued to imply to everyone that would listen that his supervisors at the public aid office were responsible for this woman's death. He was arrested again for impersonating a police officer because he told all of these individuals, including Audrey's family, that he was a a police officer investigating the case. They briefly considered him a suspect in this crime, but they pretty much dismissed it when Rodney confessed. 
So it seems like they really didn't do a very thorough investigation. I mean, that's just my opinion. Um, it seems like it was a rushed and, you know, this person's admitting it. Let's just go with it. So in August of 1988, Dale Anderson is officially terminated from the Illinois Department of Public Aid due to insubordination and misconduct. We later find out in his book that he didn't even tell his wife. His wife thought he was working from home on a home assignment. He continues to create documents to support his vendetta. He contacts various authorities. This dude even contacts the FBI to say that his report, or I'm sorry, his supervisor, former supervisors, were murderers and that they were committing fraud and scheming against the state. Um, even the FBI investigator, who would later testify at his trial, said there was no credible evidence presented. Just a very, very disgruntled ex-employee. On August 24th of 1989, Rodney, say it, Wodick, Wodick was convicted <clears throat> of the murder of Audrey Cardenas despite very little evidence to support the conviction. His sentencing hearing was scheduled for September 28th of 1989. And that's important because what happens on September 27th? On September 27th, John Landman returns home from work. He lives in this nice subdivision in Belleville. Very quiet, lots of families. Um, but he notices when he tries to go in the house from the garage that the door is locked. And it's not usually locked. So, he, you know, that instantly kind of triggers him to think, like, that's very unusual. But he gets his keys out. He opens the door. And he's he's planning on coming home to his wife who's pregnant with their second child and his three-year-old son but it's eerily quiet and he can't find them at first he looks around and then he notices an afghan laying on the floor beside their bed so when he picks it up he finds jolene's body half under the bed half out of the bed and she is very obviously deceased. And she has a black-handled pair of scissors protruding from her neck. He instantly starts to panic like most people would. And he thinks about his son. So he runs around trying to find his son. He looks in his son's bedroom. He doesn't see him. Um, so he comes back to his room and he looks under the other side of the bed. And that's where he found, finds his lifeless three-year-old son, Kenneth. I can't imagine coming home to that. Um, in Alva Bush's book, he describes that after he got off work, he actually went golfing for just a little bit. And he has this guilt built up that maybe if he hadn't gone golfing, he could have prevented this from happening. Of course, it's in no way, you know, his fault at all. But it's just really sad to think about having to live with that and but think what if. Survivor's remorse is a very, very common thing, though. Absolutely. And it, it's just so you know, sad. You get a lot of people, especially like him, you know, the what ifs start piling up. And the what ifs and uh, maybe, it, maybe this or maybe that. And, you know, I feel sorry. You know, I feel really bad for people that have to go through that kind of thing. Because it is a... A bunch of what ifs, you know, and I I wouldn't be able to handle it. No, 
It's just awful. Um, Dr. Raj Nanduri, and you might recognize that name because on one of our previous episodes called um, The Brighton Baby Killers, we talked about her. She's a pathologist. Um, she was involved in this case as well and completed. Apparently she was the only one in Southern Illinois in the 80s. She might have been. You know, we're small towns down here. Um, she performed the autopsies on Jolene and on Kenneth, and she determined the cause of death to be blunt force trauma to the head and stab wounds to the neck. Jolene's body had a rope around it as well, indicating that at some point she had been strangled. So in Alva Bush's book, he actually shows a picture of the rope and it's tied like into a bow in the back, which... Alva Bush describes as being sort of a handle. Yeah. Okay. And so Jolene's body's found that way. Um, they question her husband. I mean, in every murder case, they always question the husband. And I don't know the exact statistics, but I know like pregnant women are more likely to be murdered than non-pregnant women, um, especially by a domestic partner. So they do question him, but he has a very solid alibi. He's very clearly distraught, and the forensic evidence just doesn't support that he, he committed these crimes. So he's eliminated as a suspect. The first thing that the police do is canvass the neighborhood. And when they do that, they find out some really disturbing information. First, they find that there was a blue Oldsmobile parked in the neighborhood that several of the neighbors saw and they thought it was kind of weird um that because they didn't recognize the vehicle they didn't know who it was and it disappeared shortly after like between 4 30 p.m and 5 p.m and the bodies were found around five a little bit after five like maybe 5 10 p.m um and one of the neighbors who's actually just an 11 year old girl she was outside and she thought it was weird too and for whatever reason, she decided she needed to memorize the license plate number. Now, what in the world would an 11-year-old think of that for? I have no idea. Good honor, though. I mean... Right? You know, that takes stranger danger to a whole... <laughs> whole new whole, level. Like, I mean, I, hell, at 11 years old, I wouldn't have think, hey, I'm going to take that down. I'm going I'm to remember that license plate number because that's weird. Right, but she and did. Then, and to get it, and she remembered it well, like, to a T, so that they could actually find out that it was Anderson's freaking license plate. Yes. So, like Chris said, this car belongs to Dale Anderson. He has a blue Oldsmobile with that exact license plate. And so, you know, the name rings a bell because, as you know, as we've talked about, he's called the cops several times. He's been arrested a couple of different times for some minor things. Um, you know, they know who he is. So they go to his house and they start staking out his house, but they decide not to go in right away because they don't have a search warrant. Um, but while they're staking it out, they see his wife, Linda, and his kids come home from school but they notice a lot of weird stuff. Like he has all the windows boarded up with cardboard. They don't see anything or hear anything for a couple of days. So they start to actually worry that maybe he's like killed his family because they didn't go to school. Linda didn't go to work. Nobody stepped outside. It's just, it's completely quiet. But until they get a search warrant, they're going to stay in place. Now, this was on a Wednesday that these murders occurred and that they started staking out that house. On Friday morning, 
they do get a search warrant. The search warrant is for Dale Anderson's handwriting. And that's when the police decide to enter the home. But why would they want his handwriting? This is very interesting. Jolaine's body, there was a note kind of half under it and half next to it. And it read, quote, a woman and two men hit me. They called each other Krupa, Bob Delary, and Vale. They bragged about killing Audrey Cardenas. Their ILLPN CRX15 and KDH221. End quote. So the significance of that, um, as Alva Bush describes in his book Deadly Deception, is that LPN is common cop lingo for license plate number. And um, somebody that's not in law enforcement probably wouldn't have wrote it that way. Um, I sure wouldn't. To me, you ask me what an LPN is, I'm going to tell you it's a nurse. It's me. (laughs) So, you know, I wouldn't have thought of that. Um, And the people mentioned Bob Delary, Vale, and Krupa. Those are Dale Anderson's supervisors. And it's almost kind of laughable, but it's not. It's a horrible thing that happened. But, like, the extent that he went to, it's just insane. So early on the morning of September 29th, the officers knock on Dale and Linda's door. They don't get any answers, so they kind of go in SWAT team. They knock through his front door. They find the children. They're very scared. In Alva's book, they actually said the son pretended not to be breathing at first because he was told by his father um, that the police were going to try to kill him. But eventually they get the children out of there and they bring them to the police station. But Dale and Linda's door is locked. So he's seemingly not showing any concern for his children. Um, He eventually agrees to come out. And when they come out, Linda leaves almost immediately. And she goes with officers to the police station and to find her children. They ask Dale to come down to the station because they need to get his handwriting. He adamantly refuses. They ask him several times, but he says, no, I want to stay here. I want to stay here. So they keep him there and they start this handwriting process, which the way it's described in the book, apparently it takes a a long time. Like it's a lot of different ways they have to write. There's different ways you have to write. Like you write with both hands and then there's very specific phrases that you have to write because they, when they analyze it, they're analyzing the strokes on the, uh, like the different letters, like how you, like how you write your T's, you know, like how you dot your I's, how your S's combine into with an E, you know, you have to write cursive, you know, you have to print. There's just, it's, if, I mean, if you really want to, like, there's YouTube videos on how they, like, the, how uh, deep in detail, in detail that they go in with these things. And they're actually very interesting. Like, forensic science has, is far it, it this came to come a, a, so far you Absolutely. know since you know are the old like sleuth days where they're just dusting for fingerprints with a little powder like you know you can tell so many different things by uh, somebody's handwriting nowadays right and this know? was even you know in the, in the 90s. 30 years ago right. a little over 30 years ago um so 
as time consuming as this process is, it's even more time consuming because Dale makes it that way. He um, frequently interrupts. He wants to discuss his frustration with the Belleville Police Department for taking his guns. He wants to talk about his supervisors and the public aid office and all the things they did and that they're corrupt. Um, he, he just wants to exert control over the whole thing. So the investigators kind of play into it and let him feel like he's in control. Um, but as the day passes, they actually get a search warrant to search his house while they're still there doing the samples. Um, in the meantime, they've also got people still out canvassing the neighborhoods. And what they find is a woman that lived nearby the Landman family claimed that a man that fit Dale's description came to her home on September 20th, just a week before the murders, um, to tour her home, which was for sale. She said that after she let him in, she instantly regretted it. Like, she just got this vibe, like, something's not right. This this ain't right. And he kept wanting to go back and see the crawl space again. And she was just getting very uncomfortable. She felt very uneasy about it. Um, but then suddenly her friend came over to ask for a beer. And when her friend came over, the man just left very quickly and abruptly. And she just thought the whole situation was very, very weird. And um, another neighbor whose home was also for sale claimed a man fitting Dale's description came to her home on the day of the murders, requested to come in and look at the home, but the lady felt very uneasy about it and she denied his request. Jolene and John Landman's house was also for sale at the time of the murder. The evidence found in Anderson's home included several items that raised suspicions and helped secure an, in, an indictment. Among these items, they found several suitcases that were, quote, murder kits. Um, they had gloves, ropes, weapons that were knives, brass knuckles inside. Um, just very strange things to have, you know, to see in there. Um, there were multiple newspaper articles re regarding the disappearance of Audrey Cardenas and other women in the area, including the Jane Doe in Smithton and Christina Povelish from Belleville. There were paddles and guns that they found in a safe that Mr. Anderson claims he hadn't been in in several years. However, that's also where they found some newspaper clippings that were only two weeks old. And they also found an ID card written in Spanish belonging to Jorge Cardenas. Now, in an added portion of Alva's book, Deadly Deception, that I believe was added like in 1998, maybe, Carolyn Tuft continued to investigate this case. And she actually went to Mexico and found Jorge Cardenas. But he didn't know who Audrey Cardenas was. So... This um, ID card is very strange and still an unsolved mystery in this case. There was a letter also written in the, um, they found in the safe, and it was written 
as if it was written by Charlotte Krupa. It was written from her perspective. And it basically said that Vale and Delaria wanted to kill her because she was going to speak up about Audrey's murder and the corruption in the public aid office. However, the letter wasn't written in Charlotte Krupa's handwriting. It was written in Dale Anderson's handwriting. This led investigators to believe that his plan was at some point to kill Charlotte Krupa. What was not in Dale's handwriting, however, was the note found by Jolene Landman's body. It was determined that the note was wrote by Jolene herself, but there were several misspellings that were consistent in the notes that were written and found in Dale Anderson's home. Investigators suspect that he forced Jolene with the rope tied around her neck to write this letter. And when I read that, my heart just kind of stopped because this poor lady knew she was going to die. Right. And, you know, she's an expectant mother with a three-year-old son. And I would highly suspect that she was probably killed before the three-year-old. Yeah. And she knew what was going to happen. And my heart just breaks. It's just terrible. The... Police entered Anderson's home about 5 o'clock that morning, and at 9 p.m., while still in the home, Dale Anderson was arrested and formally charged with the murders of Jolene and Kenneth Landman. Dale's trial was given a change of venue because there was so much intense media coverage. So he was tried in Chester, Illinois, which for those of you who don't know Southern Illinois, there's a huge Popeye statue in Chester. He and his attorneys, they made multiple attempts to have his statements and the evidence that was seized from his house excluded, but they were unsuccessful. Dale claimed that he was physically abused by the police officers during the investigation. However, his intake exam when he was booked showed no signs of physical trauma, no signs of, of being, you know, brutalized by police officers or anything like that. The jurors, however, were not allowed to know that Jolene was pregnant at the time of her murder. Which I wonder why. Because nowadays, like, if you murder somebody that's pregnant, it's considered a double homicide, I believe. I wonder if that was if that wasn't always the case. And it may not have been. They may have felt like it would be too um, prejudicial or or too, too, you know, too much emotion involved in it that way. Um, but whatever the reason, his defense attorneys were successful in getting that information banned from his trial. But it really didn't matter because on April seventeenth of nineteen ninety. Dale was convicted of first-degree murders, two counts for Jolene and Kenneth Landman, and he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Now, in the 1989, the Illinois still had the death penalty, and prosecutors did want to seek the death penalty. However, the jury did decide to spare him that based off... um, You know, to be honest with you, it doesn't even really make sense why. They said based off his history. So whatever that means, um, it really wouldn't have mattered anyway, because in 2003, Governor George Ryan commuted all the death sentences to life in prison anyway. Um, So this is not where our story ends, because reporter Carolyn Tuft, you know, she had previously interviewed Anderson. She had obviously worked with Audrey Cardenas and she just knew that 
this story wasn't finished. She transferred from the Bevel News Democrat to the St. Louis Post-Dispatch and continued investigating Anderson in the, and the Audrey Cardenas murder. Um, she goes so far, really, as to say that Rodney, say the last name, Woodick. is completely innocent. And the evidence she finds is enough that Audrey's mother even supports that. And her mother even said, quote, Carolyn Tuff never felt like Wodick was it. End quote. And she said that in 2018, referring to her daughter's murder investigation. An article in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch in 1999 actually pointed the finger for the murders of Cardenas, Ruth Ann Janey, Christina Povelish, Elizabeth West, and the Jane Doe of Smithton to Dale Anderson. Robert Ressler, a former FBI profile Profiler provided a theory that Dale Anderson was a serial killer responsible for the death of all women. Um, his article in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, for which he collaborated with Carolyn Tuft, provides a lot of circumstantial evidence that supports his theory. He says, you know, the proximity of the murders, all the women are thought to have been abducted from Belleville. And the proximity of where all their bodies are found, it's not a very large area. Each woman's body was abducted from one area and found in a different area. So they weren't killed and left where they were killed. Um, He also cites that there was very little forensic evidence in all these cases, which really suggests a well-organized killer. Somebody who put a lot of thought into it, which of course... Rodney is a severely mentally ill person. He could not have put that much thought into it. And then finally, Dale Anderson had newspaper clippings from most of the cases. According to Carolyn Tuff's article, she visited Dale in prison and he said, quote, these cases and a lot of other cases you don't know about are connected, end quote. However, he denies his involvement and get this. He claims that his former supervisors at the Illinois Public Aid Office were responsible for all the murders. He also claims to have a photo of all the victims before and after they were murdered, but that evidence was never produced. And he also states that he can ID the Jane Doe victim because he has her driver's license. But again, that evidence was never produced either. He said that he had this information because he was working as an investigator and investigating these murders. It's almost laughable. Like, it's not laughable that these people died, but like the extent that he goes to because he's unhappy in the workplace. Like, wow. Um, So... Obviously, there's a lot of evidence here that supports that Rodney... Wodick. Is probably not guilty. They overturned his conviction in 2000 based on ineffective assistance of counsel. And he was retried in 2001 and was acquitted. But Rodney's life really didn't get much better. He returned to California after leaving the IDOC custody. He was arrested in California for attacking a man with a bicycle chain. That's according to Gowan's article in 2016. 
He was eventually released, and he lived the rest of his life in an assisted care facility for the mentally ill in California. He died in 2014 from natural causes. Audrey Cardenas' mother, Billy Fowler, states that she does not believe Rodney killed her daughter and believes that Dale Anderson is responsible. In 2008, the mystery of the Jane Doe of Smithton was at least partially solved. The body was exhumed and positively identified as Folia Myla Chavez. She was a 28-year-old drifter from California in 1986. One thing that kind of struck me a little weird, um, and I could be completely off of base here. This is my own conjecture, but Rodney Wodick was also from California and a drifter who came in the 80s. So I just, right. I just, my own curiosity is like, did these two people maybe know each other somehow? Um, but there's no evidence of that. Um, her homicide has still never been solved. Greg, Gregory Bowman, he was actually convicted in 1979 of the murders of Elizabeth West and Ruth Ann Janey. And even though later investigators strongly believed that Dale Anderson maybe was responsible, um, he was serving two life sentences in the state of Illinois. He was able to get his convictions overturned based off evidence that reporter Carolyn Tuft helped to uncover. The evidence was basically the investigators in the original case had planted somebody in the jail to solicit the confession from Gregory Bowman. And it was presented in a coercive way, like the, something, you know, along the lines of, oh, you won't get as bad of a sentence if you admit to doing this, this and this. Um, so the case was overturned. Because uh, it was determined that the evidence was illegally obtained. So his sentences were vacated in 2001. However, he remained in jail awaiting his retrial on those murders until 2007 when somehow, I'm not sure how, if he had friends or family, he was able to post bail. So at that time, the Belleville investigators, they sent his DNA over to the St. Louis County Police Department to test it against another crime. The crime in St. Louis was the murder of Velda Rumfelt, who was sexually assaulted and murdered in 1977. Mr. Bowman's DNA was a match for the DNA found on Velda's underwear. Velda had been strangled and raped and her bra was stuffed in her mouth. Bowman was convicted of first-degree murder in Missouri and sentenced to death. At his sentencing hearing, multiple witnesses testified and multiple women said that in the early 1970s, um, Mr. Bowman had put a knife to their throat and had sexually assaulted them. And the mothers and family of... Ruth Ann Janey and Elizabeth West were also able to speak at his sentencing hearing. However, because they spoke and provided testimony, his death sentence was overturned because, you know, he was no longer convicted of the murders of Elizabeth West and Ruth Ann Janey. So they felt that that testimony was very prejudicial and his death sentence was was um overturned and 
it's unclear if there was still a process to resentence him to life in prison or I'm sorry, to death, or if they was if, if he was just going to serve life in prison. But it really didn't matter because Gregory Bowman died of natural causes at the age of 64 in a Missouri prison in 2016. As of today, Dale Anderson continues to reside in the Illinois prison system. He's housed at the Pontiac Correctional Center. His wife, Linda, divorced him shortly after her conviction and from all of the articles that I've read in my research, um, both her and his children have no communication with him whatsoever. Dale may very well be a serial killer, but the lack of evidence leaves so many things unanswered in this question. In in this case, there's so many questions that need answers still. Um, me personally, I don't probably believe that Rodney had anything to do with the murder of Audrey Cardenas. Um, just my opinion based off research, um, I do feel like Dale Anderson most likely murdered Audrey Cardenas. Um, did Greg Bowman kill Elizabeth West and Ruth Ann Janey? That I don't really know. Um, it certainly seems like Dale Anderson may be a serial killer, but obviously we know Gregory Bowman was not a very stand-up guy. DNA evidence has him, you know, hooked on this other murder that happened around the same time just over the river in Missouri. So is it entirely possible that he killed both Velda, Elizabeth, and Ruth Ann? Yeah, it absolutely is. Um, the FBI investigator that described Dale as a probable serial killer, he felt like the reason there was a gap between the 70s murders and then the other murders that started in 1986 were because uh, Dale was working at the Illinois Public Aid Office and was exploiting women through that. Um, some of those allegations include asking for sexual favors in exchange for more public aid benefits and things like that so that when his job became problematic is when he started to kill again based off that theory. Um, I look at it knowing that Mr. Bowman was responsible for Velda Rumfeld's death. I think there's a good possibility he did kill Elizabeth West and Ruth Ann Janey and it's a good possibility that Dale Anderson killed Audrey Cardenas, I believe that with all my heart. Yeah. Um, I think it's a good possibility that he killed Folia, the lady that was found in Smithton. And I think it's a good possibility that he's responsible for the death of Christina Povlish. Um, unfortunately, until more evidence comes to light that can solve these murders, they're going to remain a mystery. But luckily, Dale Anderson's going to remain in prison. Right. Now... I want to interject something that Gina showed to me, and I had a laugh with it. Now, this is a very serious topic and everything. Uh, there's a gentleman on YouTube. Uh, the YouTube channel is Stories from the Penitentiary. Uh, this gentleman writes letters to inmates and gets responses from him. Uh, there's one in particular where he wrote a letter to Dale Anderson and got a response from him. And... If you really want to see into the mind of this man, watch this video. Uh, there are so many, like you can tell, like even to this day, he is saying that he's not guilty and that he's going to get a pardon and that his uh, public defender is 
you know, like you could tell that there's something not mentally right with this person. Um, so go check that out. Like I said, it's a small YouTube channel called Stories from the Penitentiary. If you look up, if you just search Dale Anderson Serial Killer, serial killer it's one of the first ones that pops up. Another thing I want to add. We love doing these for you guys. Um, it's been a lot of fun. Um, <clears throat> we need your help, though. We do a lot of stories from Southern Illinois because that's what we're, we know, like, that's what we know. What do you guys want? Do you, any kind of criticism that you could give us would be great. Like, we are a brand new podcast. This is what, our third, fourth episode, third episode? Third episode. You know, like, we're still trying to get it all right. So, right. so you know, go to the midwestcrimefiles.com and on one of the you can comment on one of the blog posts about what you like, what you don't like, or if you don't want to be public about it, go to uh, or you can send us an email to the midwestcrimefiles at gmail.com and send us a message there about what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong, what would you, what would you like to see? You know, like like I said, we're a brand new podcast. We're still trying to figure things out. We're working with <laughs> with with minimal equipment right now. We're hopefully, you know, this is going to get bigger and better for us. But but you know, we enjoy seeing so many the views that were you know like the Brighton the Baby Killers of Art has got like eighteen hundred views. Um, I think that's actually the massacre in Mount Vernon. Oh, you know, it's gotten you know. So we know there's a niche out there for this kind of thing. And I know there's a thousands of different podcasts out there that you can be listening to, but we appreciate you guys for listening to ours. Um, and we hope to be doing this for a lot more to come. So absolutely. And make sure you like us on Facebook and follow us. Um, oh yeah. Check us out on all the social medias. Yes. We're on all the, so you know, uh, we're now you can listen to us on Spotify and Google. We're still trying to get on Apple podcast, but I really don't care if we do or not. <laughs> Like honestly, it's this like seeing our seeing it on on Spotify, like just makes my day. Like yes. that's and if you don't have Spotify or, or Google Podcast, you can also listen directly from our website. Um, so if you go to www.themidwestcrimefiles.com, you can click on the stories to read the blogs, or you can click on the podcast uh, to listen to the stories. Right now, our blog stories come out a little bit before the podcast, so if you're really wanting to listen to the podcast and not have it spoiled for you, don't read the blog, but if you're a reader yeah. versus a listener... It's a little bit earlier for yeah, you. Yeah, you got to remember we we have a, we both have full time jobs. This is a hobby for us right now, and we're trying to get a, a set schedule on when we want the blog post to come out and when we want the podcast. We're hoping that, like the podcast come out every Sunday. We're actually doing this one early because I work as a nurse and I work this weekend, so we're not going to be able to record <laughs> any other time. So every fourth week, you'll get one a little early. <laughs> But no, I, we just we love you guys. We appreciate you know all the support that you guys are showing us so far, and we hope to keep this going for a while. Absolutely, we will talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to Thanks, the Midwest guys. Crime Files.